0: you know, we always say it's written by the rich for the middle class about the poor. (laughs) And so we want to change that. So it's like actual middle class and working poor people writing about their own experience, not being written about.
1: Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Alyssa Court, who is the executive director of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. They support independent journalists to write stories about real life and get those stories into the mainstream media hoping to mobilize readers to change systems that contribute to economic hardship. Alyssa is the author of four nonfiction books so far, including Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America, Branded, The Buying and Selling of Teenagers, and Republic of Outsiders. And I just found out the forthcoming book called Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. Alyssa's journalism appears regularly in places like the New York Times and the Guardian she also writes poetry i think you'll find her well worth the listen so first my sponsor then my interview with Alyssa court with the economic hardship reporting project this episode is brought to you by graphicacy graphicacy is an
0: analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information they are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find graphicacy at graphicacy.com, that is g r a p h i c a c y.com. With graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better
1: world. Alyssa, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
0: Hi, so I'm Alyssa Court. I'm the executive director of the economic hardship reporting project and the author of squeezed why our families can't afford america and the forthcoming bootstrapped liberating ourselves from the american dream
1: i did not know about the forthcoming book
0: yeah, it's out in march
1: let me just get a little more biographical stuff from you because i'm not sure if everybody who's in my world will know your world Give me a little bit about where you grew up and your education and your path to being a writer.
0: Well, I grew up in New York in, when I was growing up, it was the East Village, but now it's like Greenwich Village. I grew up there. I went to Stuyvesant High School when it was on 15th Street. I had a pretty leftist family, I'd say that. So I grew up with this very strong set of values. You know, it was from this tradition of the 1930s and 40s of the certain kind of Jewish intellectual. I think it was my great uncle was in the workman's circle, that kind of thing. I went to an arts camp that also billed itself as a socialist work camp. <laughs> I think they've now changed their name so they can just attract the kind of kid that wants to go to arts camp. I grew up in the 1980s. There's still at that point an overhang of a certain intellectualism, anti-materialism, right? There was like this whole kind of c- cultural stuff that was held over from the sixties and from even before that, right? It, when I was growing up. So my first book reflected some of that. It was called Branded, the buying and selling of teenagers. And I wrote that in my late twenties. And it was sort of part of the WTO protest culture of that period. And the no logo and fast food nation. And I saw myself as somebody who was sort of part of that movement a little bit, the adbusters movement, which I don't know if your listeners will even remember, but <laughs> it was really interested in kind of critiquing the line between editorial and advertising. And at this point with Instagram and all these different cultural forms where people are constantly advertising themselves, it seems quaint. But at that point, we were still guarding the gates between culture and news and advertising, right? That was my first way to, uh, that I join literary journalism and and activist culture too. So in fact, the way those two things came together.
1: How did you first come across the Economic Hardship Reporting Project? Because I saw that you did it with Barbara Ehrenreich, but... I wasn't sure if she had already had something going and then you joined it. Or what, what's the story there?
0: She had something going that was amazing. She, post-2008, there was obviously there's terrible recession uh, where I wound up bailing out the banks. And one of the groups to suffer was journalists. And journalists were suffering not just because of the recession, but also because of the rise of digital uh, Culture news sites, decrease in ad funding, venture capitalists buying newspapers, and just general devaluing of content production, right? So a lot of people were losing their jobs. Something like 45,000 jobs were lost between 2004 and 2015 from news sites. And she saw that and was like, hell, we have to peel these reporters off the floor um, and give them work Laid off reporters, but also reporters who were themselves really near the poverty line and had always been struggling and whose voices had always been devalued. So that was kind of her idea. And when I came into it, it was really early on, a year of it sort of starting up. And we just expanded it wildly (laughs) and um, had it reach many hundreds of more people, made it visual, it was about film and photography and illustration and even poetry. We have documentary poetry. And it was all dedicated to getting these independent reporters continuing to contribute to mainstream media. So I see us as like an alternative labor organization for reporters, but also an attempt to sort of change mainstream media content. Like, let's keep these voices in the mainstream media. Let's keep general interest papers reporting on poverty and economic instability, which could be up and down the gradient. Like if you're middle-class, you, at this point in this country, you have a lot of economic instability usually. And I think there's a tendency to have these stories, you know, they, they're published in December in time for the prizes, <laughs> but our idea is to try to have them published all year round and by people who are as close to these experiences as possible. So it's not David Brooks.
1: How did you meet her?
0: She spoke to me about a grant. I'd been introduced to her by a friend who was at that point working for HRP at a very part-time basis. He's a great editor, and he introduced me to her, and she knew a ton about ab- abortion. And I was working on a film called The Last Clinic, and I wound up working on that, and then the film that came after that called Jackson, and they're both about the clinic at the center of Dobbs. So I was kind of writing and producing The Last Clinic, the director's Macy Crow, who's an amazing director, and she was just riveting. I mean, I, I talked to her on the phone. I expected her to be someone who knew a lot about labor, economics, workers, working poor experience, et cetera, stuff like that. Suddenly I was like, no, she'd known people in Jane. She'd written a book on midwives. She had a very eclectic knowledge base. And so I was thrilled. I was like, wow, she knows as much about this seemingly as she does about the working poor. And yeah, we had this friendship. And then I started working as an editor very part-time because we didn't have a lot of funding then. And we just built this up. I mean, at a certain point she stopped editing really it's been years since she was like actively editing but in the beginning we really we would on be on the phone every day I mean it was incredibly beautiful and intense (laughs) thing to create this it's almost like she's like we have a child and the child is the economic hardship reporting project
1: tell me about it as an institution how many people are associated with it basics like what kind of budget what kind of size
0: sure now it's a $1.4 million a year organization. It's been that for a while now. Um, I work very closely with the managing director. His name's David Wallace. And then George Lozano does our kind of administration and some of our tech stuff. And then there's like a ton of contractors and independent reporters and radio producers and just people that we give grants to or people we hire for a set of hours to do a task like fundraising or publicity or things like that. So it's hard to estimate exactly how many people are involved in running it. There's only three full-time employees. But besides that, there's like a lot, a lot of other people who pitch in and obviously get paid for it. And then hundreds and hundreds of people who get grants. Like, so the majority of our budget goes to them. And it's always gone to them. I mean, if it was up to Barbara, everything would have gone to them. When you build an organization, you can't be a total anarchist. So you have to, you know, have an infrastructure. You have to have a board. You have to have all the stuff that she, she found, you know, she found boards quite boring. We were a little more realist about some of this stuff. And yeah, so we built this thing. And the hundreds of people include everything from, I mean, we won an Emmy for one of our films, a Murrow for a podcast. And that's often by people who are working independent reporters who may not be wealthy, but they're kind of comfortable usually, but they wouldn't have the resources to create something on this scale. And then we have a lot of people who are really financially struggling, who are writing personal essays about being evicted or experiencing homelessness.
1: So if someone is aspiring to write a story or be a reporter of the type that you want to support. How do they connect with you? What's the process? Like, give me an example of how that works.
0: We have an information email, (laughs) but I think the first thing to do, and this is something that is really important for anyone who considers themselves a reporter, you look at our site and you read what we do. We have a set of FAQs that sort of explain what would compose an EHRP story. I think that's something that sometimes young reporters don't do, which is like, look at what you're aspiring to be part of. (laughs) And like read the work and not just to flatter the editor, but just so you really know what they're looking for. It seems basic, but it was something I I used to teach a lot at J school. And I'd be like, always go to the site, read every piece you can, get the parameters, you know, it's easy. So the stories are all about inequality. And again, that can mean anything from films about abortion clinics that are serving mostly poor women, or it could be about somebody getting evicted, somebody's reporting the story of their own eviction right now, they're going to be evicted at the end of October. To our radio show, which is called Going Through Broke, and it's on all these different people's lives, including someone who works as a cashier during the pandemic, who's also has a PhD and is pretty critical and thoughtful about their own experience. Somebody who lived in many different addresses growing up, reflecting on that experience, like 70 addresses, what it means to live from address to address. One of the things that struck me in assigning and editing all these years around this issue is that there's stories that the mainstream media forgets because they're not working with these kind of writers. Obviously, there's the big stories about labor trends and inflation, and, and then the reporter at a traditional paper will just go out and try to find subjects that accommodate this story. right They'll be like, "Oh, inflation, now let's go to Indiana and see how the people at the bar are thinking about inflation." For us, it would be like. The person who comes to us with a story that only they would know, like what it's like to work at a potato chip factory where there's blood on the floor. I mean, I guess somebody could do a big investigation and find out about that potato chip company, but they wouldn't necessarily know to look there, right? It's because we have, at this point, hundreds of writers who've had firsthand experience of some of this stuff.
1: So somebody has a story about the potato chip factory, and how do you help them? finance that, get it published? What's that process?
0: I want to stress that like, let's say 65% of our workers, our writers and filmmakers and photographers are not living near the poverty line. It's sort of like people like you and I maybe. And then the other third, they are the people that I would, me and my colleagues would agent. So we'd take their work and we'd be like, okay, how are we going to sell this firsthand reported story of this eviction? So, this just happened. This writer came to me, said, this is happening. And basically they also just needed the money to cover their expenses. So some of it was an emergency. So like we, we got them paid as quickly as we could. Their check is now being cut even before their piece is handed in.
1: You paid them or the place that you placed them? We pay them. Yeah,
0: We pay everybody. And then I got the names of different editors that would be interested. And the writer sent it out with our you know, recommendation, or referral. And the second editor they wrote to has taken it at 3,000 words.
1: What is something like that worth? Just, I, I am not a reporter. I don't know the industry. Somebody spends a week writing a story.
0: And like, a, and in this case, months I, living it, right? So yeah, yeah. that's sort of incalculable. That's like, they're basically, they're reporting with their blood. Well, in the traditional, when I, in the 90s, that would be worth a dollar a word. Now that's probably worth like, for many news sites, like $600, somebody could write a 3,000 word story. And that's part of why we exist, because we are still paying a dollar word. So this person is going to get a dollar word for their work. And exp- expenses could be the hotel that they're going to when they've been evicted for the week they're evi- after they're evicted, where they're writing their piece. That could be part of their expenses in this case, right? But yeah, in the open market now, it's it's a scandal how little writers are paid. And, and that's not everybody, right? I mean, if you're writing for the Atlantic or The New Yorker, and you're in the magazine, you're making, yeah, maybe $2, $3 a word. But the majority of people are now making something that's below minimum wage, wildly below it, given how much work they're putting into their writing. And that really cramps what the public will know. It's a information issue. It's about keeping a whole breed alive, but it's also how do we know about what is going on with eviction? So we know this broad brush stuff about eviction moratoria. We know these stories maybe that ever so often run that are kind of earnest about, you know, what's happening with evicted populations. But the lived experience of that is, I think, again, it's just worth its weight in gold, so to speak, just in the sense that it creates empathy to have these stories told from the passionate first person.
1: What's the perspective of the publications? I'm sure it varies a lot. Are there a lot of major publications that are like, send me more of this. I I want a constant stream of this kind of reporting. Or do you have to sell it and it's difficult to find a place? What's that perspective?
0: Well, it really depends. Like sometimes it is hard to place. I'm not going to lie. Sometimes things are very depressing and there's a feel good emphasis, which we at EHRP can get very irritated by because it's like, you know, GoFundMes and (laughs) giveaways and the person who makes it off the island, right? The proverbial island. I spoke into a film studio. They're like, do you have anything that's not sad? (laughs) I was like, you mean like swifty and funny? And they're like, no, just funny. (laughs) No, I don't. Um, No, none of this is funny. Um, I mean, some of it's sort of absurdist, but so there, you know, you get pushback along those lines. On the other hand, A lot of our stories have gone viral, meaning have been very popular because they're human (laughs) and they're people in desperate straits and they're well-written. And potentially the readers are living something similar. Like if it's about experiencing student debt or we had a story in Teen Vogue that was popular about young women who were choosing to go to different colleges in states that they would have a right to abortion, that was very popular because I think probably young women on teen, were reading it on Teen Vogue and being like, oh, okay, I'm going to take notes on this. And I'm not sure that story would have necessarily always existed. Some of those stories are very popular. And, you know, we've had stuff run in the Times that was very popular, Washington Post, right, that unusual, again, unusual experiences like that of a veteran's widow who lived with his prosthesis near the door of her house to remind her of, What was paying for the house and just the whole experience of this total trauma in this country and getting life insurance. And it was a pretty remarkable story. And again, it was not something that someone who had not had that experience would have necessarily been able to think to write about. And I think it was quite popular. This happens a lot with us. We'll have things that are very popular and without the time and money and support, the people writing them or filming them might have never made them.
1: Do you think that economic hardship is always the opposite of feel good, or do you think that there are people who are living with financial difficulty who are perfectly happy and thriving?
0: So there's this piece by this writer, Joe Ford, about living, choosing to live without a traditional home, like in a tent, basically, in Alaska, even in the winter. And it was a wild and joyous piece, and it was obviously motivated. It was sort of had that, you know, whatever kind of Walden um, thing, and it was kind of anti-establishment. It was like, I don't want to have to do all these terrible things of like the one-dimensional corporate man. You know, I want to live like this, and it was beautiful. I mean, it. I think it had a little air of tragedy too, right? I mean, it's a hard life living in the cold in Alaska, and we had to actually pay him using gift cards because he was unbanked, which was another kind of interesting thing that EHRB can do and does do, like send people rain gear and cameras and things like that when, if they don't have them, but he, he needed to be paid in gift cards. But that, that's a story of like, again, it's a kind of an optimistic story that if it was not written by someone like him, would anyone know that somebody unhoused in the icy tundra is actually happy or sees themselves as happy and can tell the whole story of that. It's it pretty it was- yeah, But
1: that person seems to be doing it very much by choice, which may be a little different than somebody who is kind of stuck working in fast food or something.
0: Absolutely. We do have a, the Starbucks 7. Two of the Starbucks 7 just wrote a piece for us that was about their organizing. And I think that's a really optimistic a story about worker being a worker. We had a big project on worker cooperatives where I, we sent six photographers out to shoot workers cooperatives around the country created sort of art show of it. And then, you know, also an article in mother Jones, like that's, that's pretty optimistic. This is a vision of a different kind of labor where people own their own labor. And yeah, there's a number of things like that. I guess when I say feel good, I, I want them to be really feel good. Not this exceptional, uh, treacly, you know, the one person to get out of the town and, um, I want it to be structural. (laughs) I mean, I want the stories to be reproducible too. Like let's have a story that's optimistic about labor that it could happen in every Starbucks if people could be organized and there was a a show of support for it and funds being poured into it, right? So that to me is, that's a real feel-good story or these cooperatives are a real feel-good story.
1: What's the lens through which you view the work that you do and like how are you filtering what you're supporting? You know, what, what is driving the choices that you make?
0: Our motto is quality journalism about inequality. To me, there's like rigor that you can put into a story for uh, like what we were just talking about, like stories that are truly feel good versus the kind of stories that poses feel good around poverty and inequality. But you can also talk about the quality of an image, like an image that's beautiful and striking and humanizing of its subjects, rather than an image that's just like a baby drinking Mountain Dew out of a bottle, right? Like kind of poverty porn, or an image of people looking dour in a West Virginia town. Like we had a project a long time ago that was actually about the beauty of this really poor West Virginia town, a photo project. So I think some of that is the beauty is allowed. The beauty should be part of a visual language around poverty, and income inequality. And that's very debatable right now in f- photographic cir- circles. But I feel like what I'm talking about is not the beauty of the sort of Walker Evans, iconic, weather-beaten, fence kind of beauty, but the, a natural beauty of people living their lives and of photographers and reporters spending time with them enough to get the detail and the, the language, the natural language they speak, and all that kind of stuff, which I find beautiful. So that's one thing. And then then another thing is, again, to keep these voices in the mainstream media, to keep the mainstream media, you know, we always say it's written by the rich for the middle class about the poor. (laughs) And so we want to change that. So it's like actual middle class and working poor people writing about their own experience, not being written about. And so we have an own voices movement that gets people reporting on their own communities now but it's often not in terms of class and i guess part of our project is to change that too where you see class uh, and income insecurity as as an identity it's not a fixed identity but it's one that people can be inhabiting and that when you have people writing out of that identity rather than objectifying it something interesting can happen and something valuable
1: What do you think we don't understand then in general because of mainstream reporting about our country? I mean, there always seems to be these, I don't know, like post the Trump election, there was for a little while the press looking at itself and saying, we seem to have missed something about rural America or conservative white America or evangelical America or white working class America. what do you think we're missing, generally, with our non-helped-by-you sort of reporting?
0: I mean, I think, again, we're missing what it can be beautiful. We're missing stories about labor, or we're exoticizing the stories that do exist. Sometimes you hear these mainstream newspapers being like, labor's in, or <laughs> you <laughs> are like, uh, like, they'll be the equivalent or podcasts, honestly. And you'll be like, well, gosh, there's been a lot of people reporting on it. They're often underfunded and they're in working for in these times. But you, they're still, they've are still they been doing this for t- 20 years and these stories are out there and it is a building steam and it's the most exciting story of my generation, honestly, the labor movement and the the organizing of gig workers and all this other stuff. So I feel like that's missing that, that first of all, they're not, you know, you're not Christopher Columbus discovering labor reporting, <laughs> but also that that it is the the story of our time. So that that's, to me, another crucial point that I'm hoping we're, we're getting out there. And then trying to change the language around how we talk about income inequality. So for instance, like one of my big bugbears is the term unskilled. And I know that the Bureau of Labor and all kinds of other very formal organizations use that to describe people who, you know, whatever, make pizzas or work in the lingerie department of a department store. But I don't think that's unskilled. If you've ever tried to make a pizza, or if you've ever tried to get work your way around a department store, you know that it takes a certain kind of skill. It might not be the skill of somebody who went to graduate school, but it is a skill. And I I really think phrases like low skill, unskilled need to be retired. And like we could just talk about them as general workers. One thing I found really interesting was when I think Eric Adams, the mayor of New York, had said something like low skilled workers, right? He described that. And I'm thinking a year, two years before, they were frontline, they were essential, you were romanticizing them. And now you're diminishing them. And like we really need to check this verbiage. Another thing is talking about poverty, the poor. Um, instead of talking about financial stress, because I think if we talk about financial stress, we're talking about people who go in and out of states of financial stress. Like, I don't know what your life's been like, but you've probably had times when you've been in financial stress. Am I right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. But it's been a while.
0: It's been a while, but like, you know, it's more inclusive in some ways that we talk about it builds solidarity. And
1: I don't think it was ever the kind of financial stress because, you know, my parents were teachers and they had a house they were frugal and so I always I always felt like there was a safety net for me in the family and then I got a good education so I never had you know I started a company and during the starting of that I made no money for a long time and so I definitely didn't sleep I wouldn't equate the what I had in that kind of stress with somebody who didn't have all the things to fall back on that that I've had. Yeah.
0: And I'm not trying to collapse the two, but I'm just trying to say that when we use terms like financially stressed, sometimes they're more inclusive and sometimes they describe people who go in and out of poverty, like people who, if you get a project and you're a gig worker, you get a lot of um, rides, you may be breaking that cycle for a month and then uh, next month you're not. And so the financially stressed kind of describes that life too, which is like a lot of Americans living paycheck to paycheck without necessarily being formally poor. So I think that's, that's one thing that interests me, like to try to expand how we think about economic struggle.
1: How do you see this kind of reporting intersect with politics in our country? Because, boy, we are in such a uh, challenging time where people's discontent is being harnessed, particularly by the right to mobilize them in ways that at least I think are are really bad. But when people are in difficulties, just like we saw in Germany in the 30s, they will look for scapegoats, ways out, and change.
0: Well, I mean, again, I think what's crucial here is to see solidarity between people and to make that part of the political project and to use language that does that. And instead of blaming a certain group, which is, I mean, my, the big thing for my new book is going to be around this, that like the self-made myth is something that really harms people because most people who would be wildly successful and so-called self-made were it. They had some original startup funds and they had somebody covering their education at some point. Right. And I think tearing the veil away from that and taking the blame and shame away from, what why one isn't achieving the american dream is actually crucial and could actually help change voting patterns you know so people won't just be identifying with a person who's sort of falsely claiming to be self-made but will see the truth of who they are but that would take kind of a counter we'd have to be countering constantly the stories of not just Trump, but others who would say they're self-made and would get people voting for them along those lines. I mean, there were studies that showed that a lot of the voters, uh, a good number of the voters for Trump believed he was self-made, and that was one of their (laughs) impetuses of voting for him. I'm not going to say it's going to work, but it's something that could be tried, where we really try to do a kind of re-education campaign around who's self-made and who isn't and what that means and the, the falseness of that.
1: Well, tell me about this book, the forthcoming book. You said it was called Bootstrapped. There's something in me immediately that resists this notion that no one is self-made because my ancestors who, who came here with close to nothing worked their way out of, I don't know, cigar rolling and things like that to have kids who went to college and, My family and a lot of other families have climbed uh, over time. And I don't know if that's self-made, but that's there was certainly the effort and the interest in education and all of the parenting and things like that, that it's the Clinton, if you work hard and play by the rules, you should do okay. And I think a lot of people do. What's what is wrong with that notion being out there?
0: Well, there's a study done by Raj Chetty, who's an economist who found that in the 80s, if you're a child born in the 80s, you had like a 50 50 chance of exceeding your parents economically. And that if you'd been born in 1940, you had some the number was exponentially. I forget what it was. Was it 80 percent, 90 percent coming up Um, from a lot
1: lower probably back then?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so I think some of this is about changing the possibility of mobility that has happened for economic reasons, the cost of college education. We can see this of healthcare, of housing in major cities, you know, and that my last book, Squeeze, was about this, um, what I call the middle precariat, which is this precarious middle class now that's been created that doesn't accord to this man in the gray flannel suit storyline that people believed in the 50s, you know. So I think that is maybe part of what we're talking about. I mean, yeah, my grandparents were immigrants and they, I'm not even sure they, you could say they bootstrapped that much. I mean, they lived in subsidized housing and had owned a shoe store in the Bronx and they did okay, but it wasn't like they ascended. (laughs) But I think even that is quite hard now. Like I wonder what their equivalent would be able to accomplish. Part of it is, it's hard to own your own labor. I mean, this is where the worker co ops come in, right? Like, if you're working as a cleaning person for handy or something, like the company is getting a huge slice of your hourly but pay. Or- there are
1: tons of people who, you know, who are immigrants who come here and they start by uh, raking grass and then they get a little company that does landscaping and they end up hiring a few people and they send their kids to college. I don't mean to get off on that tangent particularly, but.
0: It's pertinent to whatever the fading of the American dream is a real thing. And I'm not sure. Here, here it is. We've said that absolute mobility have fallen from 90% for children born in 1940 to 50% for children born in the eighties. Like that is a huge drop of mobility rates, fine yeah maybe there's going to be the talented tents that manage to like build the business but they are pushing through the the eye of a needle and it's not like it's not a they're not being supported at all in their in their efforts so we could agree on that right it's like maybe if you have some incredible will and you're able to overcome the odds but the odds are so much more stacked against you at this point so that's the only point i'm making
1: Tell me about like how you put together this book that's forthcoming like what what's sort of the thesis and and how do you marshal an argument?
0: The main thing that I'm saying is that being bootstrapped, what I call it, is to be convinced that you're that you're able to succeed no matter what has been arrayed against you and and that at this point, it's actually often not true. The premise that you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, by the way, an impossibility. <laughs> it was a joke initially um, when it was first coined because you can't pull your bootstraps up. It was an ironic joke in the 18th and 19th century. And then it becomes this like thing that people think is serious, like let's pull ourselves up. And even that, even its origin story of that phrase shows you the impossibility. It's, it's a central story of the American dream and that if you work hard and on your own resources, you will ultimately succeed. But that emphasis on individual determination and brittle self-sufficiency doesn't help us, you know, because income inequality is rising around us. And so often we are left with this desperation and shame as a result. I guess I consider it radical self-help. Like If we can just see the structural forces that are arrayed against us, doesn't mean that we won't keep trying, but it just gives you a little bit of break. You can be like, okay, that's why I, I'm one of the 80% of people in debt. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this is a lot of people. This is not the, what it, when we were young. It's a different scenario. And so you don't feel ashamed once you realize that, once you realize that it's kind of, you know, take back the word rigged from the Trump era, but like, you know, take that back when you realize that it's, it's a fixed game and the house is winning.
1: Is that in service of changing public policy so that that there's more collective benefits and policies so that people can face a less rigged system. Is that ultimately what what we're looking at or
0: Yeah, th- for that for sure, but also to free ourselves and our minds from it. And also if we succeed to stop crediting ourselves entirely. I mean, I think some of it's on the other side where we sort of go through all the people that have helped us become ourselves and help us doing our work or, you know, name check our collaborators or whatever, you know, and don't just see ourselves as alone in this. Because I think it's also honestly emotionally unhealthy for people to think that they're completely alone in either their success or their failure. And it's emotionally and politically unhealthy. And so that's, but yeah, of course, the policy changes more labor unions, blah, 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 you know, but some more concrete stuff too, but I could get into it, but it's sort of a bit of a digression. You know, also with philanthropy, honestly, like I think this philanthropy is now aimed at rewarding programs that are considered really impactful. If we had proper forms of taxation for the wealthy, it wouldn't just be this kind of pet causes of certain kinds of nonprofits, but instead we would have money is distributed (laughs) to people in an, in an appropriate way. And I think that's sort of part of the bootstrapped ethos though, that like you're a benefactor and you give these giant donations in your name and then it's all, it all reflects back on you. And it's, it's very different from having a more democratic process of wealth redistribution, right?
1: So how does the bootstrap book relate to the hardship reporting project?
0: it relates directly because I've been doing this for 10 years now and all these commenters and letter writers are always writing these letters that are like, you know, uh, just in my role as this editor, they write letters and emails and comments on our pieces that are so contemptuous and um, toxic and blaming of the subjects of the pieces or even the writers. Right. So, cause a lot of our writers are near the poverty line and it'd be like, you know, You have no one but yourself to blame. Why did you go to college? You know, why did you have another kid with another guy? Why did you have a kid at all? You know, just like it's constant, whataboutism, you know? And that to me, it was shocking. I was like, whoa, this is just, this is a wall of recrimination and hatred that, yeah, sure, you could say social media is exaggerated, but I really think it's a self-made ideology that is everybody's like, I'm doing it. They may or may not be, but if you didn't have that sensibility, you wouldn't be constantly blaming everyone around you. And the project we have of trying to reach people with these stories wouldn't be as hard, you know?
1: I think it's actually very complicated to think about why someone's circumstances are where they are. I think for sure, people are not in control of their destiny because of systemic forces to a great degree. But many people do make a huge difference for themselves by making good choices. And you don't want to lose either side of that. You don't want to blame people for not doing well. It's very distasteful when someone thinks they made it on their own. It sounds horribly egotistic. But we want people to put out the effort, make the good choices, and take some credit for that. You, you watch imp- people who are at work, who they continue to seek extra training, or they do tons of things to build themselves up. That kind of stuff pays off often. How do you find that balance or do you care?
0: Um, I don't know.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I, don't know <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one thing is interesting. I mean, some of this book has been me Wondering about my own tendency to be, I would say, kind of type A and just having to, you know, excel and all this kind of stuff and having come from uh, these immigrant grandparents and myself, you know, and having and then to,
1: Stuyvesant and Brown and and, and, of, and cranking I out books. Of books. I mean, that's a lot of effort that you're putting out. Yeah. Right? Yeah.
0: But I, I mean, I think I know I'm happier when I see myself as part of a we and part of a of mutual effort. And I mean, I know I'm a happier person. I think it's a more honest view of the world. I think it's a more honest view of life and death, honestly, that we leave this planet and we're interconnected with our generation and those coming after us. And it's not just this individual success. That's not our legacy in some ways. And that, or that maybe not the best part of our legacy. So I think some of this to me is a little existential too. It's like, I think it's. Good for people to see themselves as part of communities. Like somebody said this to me recently: every social group is sort of a mutual aid group in a way, and we don't think of it that way, but they are, and we just need to expand what we consider our social group in that sense.
1: What do you think is one of the most impactful things that you've helped get published?
0: We definitely supported pieces that then went on to like the Nomad Land, like the first piece that was became Nomad Land, the book that then. You know, again and other things like that. Well, we've supported these pieces by this writer Lori Yearwood, who has been an unhoused and she's written large pieces in the Times, like Giant Piece in Mother Jones, about that experience and about having a trauma-informed approach to thinking about and what she means by that is you think about trauma when you write journalism, then you think about it when you edit also. So I think she she's been both effective as a writer and a person. She wound up speaking to like Kathy, an audience with Kathy Hotschel in it recently, you know. And she had lived unhoused on the for 2 years, you know. So that was to me, well, that's pretty impactful. Or another thing I'm thinking of is Bobby Dempsey who wrote a piece about her mother not being able to afford hearing aid. I developed it with her to to make it very personal and her mother didn't have enough money for a hearing aid because it wasn't covered by Medicaid or Medicare, I think, not fully covered. She's low income. And we got into what that was like during COVID. She couldn't communicate. I mean, it's pretty extreme, right? It's, it wasn't just like, oh, she's not able to listen to the, her neighbors or something. This is like she can't like survive without a hearing aid. And I think that it was on Washington Post. It's definitely been cited in some of these bills that have been, or at least some of the reporting around them. So like that kind of stuff, USA Today investigation about nursing homes, That was a big investigation that also has been influential with the Biden administration's consideration of malfeasance in nursing homes. So that was, I mean, that was a big takeout that we supported. Some of my own work I think has been effective in like rethinking how we think about working class reporting, how we talk about them, how we talk about what kind of jobs people do, how we represent images of working poor people.
1: Is this sort of like, I remember seeing the book, uh, I'm sure you know Studs Terkel's working. Books. Yeah, working. That's, yeah, this, yeah. It's, it's that same tradition.
0: Completely, yeah. and Barbara's—I'd say at least his equal. Mm-hmm. She was that person too, the greatest literary representative of the working class. And how do we keep that tradition alive? And you know, the George Orwell and the Upton Sinclair and the muckraking around workplaces and the beauty around the description of some of this stuff and the humor and all the kind of that's, qualities. I, uh,
1: that's all the stuff I was reading when I was in high school.
0: Now people don't always know who these people are. And it's kind of, I mean, it's pretty shocking to me. And I guess part of the project, you said, what's our legacy or what's our mandate is to keep that alive and to keep that WPA photography and oral history t- tendency alive, to keep that going into the 21st century.
1: What would you like to see? In the mainstream journals, the, the newspapers of record and and well beyond, do you think they need to be reforming how they choose what to write about? Do you have any prescription broadly for change you'd like to see in the world of, of reporting?
0: Yeah, I think they need to hire working class writers and people who are living close to the bone or have recently lived close to the bone in that way. And I think they need to have editors who recognize that their freelancers might be not able to afford a smartphone, or if they're living in um, you know, a rural area, might be on the wrong side of the digital divide, and are not going to be able to get their internet overnight, and might not be able to afford a hotel. And so you have to pay up front. These are the kinds of things I'd like to see transformed.
1: Who do you want to read that kind of thing? Because it seems like there might be a big disconnect between the vast audience of working class people and writing and because I'm not sure if that's the group of people that are reading newspapers as much how do you make this connection I would
0: definitely like working class readers to read these stories and I think if we we do place them in local papers and on local television stations that's the hope because that's what these folks are often reading
1: there was there, there was one story on your site or somewhere where i was researching about you about someone who had to who was a waiter for a while a woman who read an article by a waitress or something that seemed very connected in that way I yeah don't, that was I mean,
0: excellent wasn't it, it yeah was really good
1: yeah i, yeah, I, I it like it was
0: that hotel work yeah that that's a classic kind of piece that we'd write because she's both a, a participant and observer she's able to write about the history and the experience of it I should also clarify, all of our writers are professional writers. So I'm not mentoring a waiter who's never written an article. Usually it's like somebody who has written for their local paper or wrote in college or got an MFA and went to debt over it. People don't believe this, but there's enough people just like that that I don't need to (laughs) be training somebody off the street uh, to tell the real story of poverty because there's enough people who... Have been published previously and have experience, you know, know how to tape somebody and know how to interview for quotes and stuff that are living near the poverty line. That I have not needed to have to train people.
1: What else would you like people to know about the economic hardship reporting project that we haven't already touched on?
0: I don't know. <laughs> I feel like we've had a pretty thorough interview, sir.
1: Is there a question that I should have asked you that I didn't?
0: No, you, you did a great job.
1: thank you Alyssa. it was good to talk to you appreciate your time i i think it's a great project and i'm glad to have a chance to talk to you about it that was Alyssa court she's at economichardship.org this is nathaniel g perlman with the great battlefield podcast you can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.